Welcome to the Battleground Wisconsin. My name is Matt Ruskin. I'm the Deputy Director here at Citizen Action, and welcome to a historic week from Wisconsin. We have our full panel with us. Everyone is uh, secluded in their homes, uh, but that means Claire Zauke is with us, and Claire is our Healthcare Director at Citizen Action. Claire, great to have you. Good to be here. Hope everyone's healthy. And Robert Craig, Executive Director, is with us. Good to virtually be here. Yeah, we're uh, our listeners. We record Thursday morning, and um, we are at least interacting via Zoom, so it can it helps us uh, hopefully bring a better show. But this is uh, certainly unusual times here in uh, the COVID nineteen crisis. Um, we obviously are living through broadly speaking historical times, but this week here in Wisconsin, um, just an unprecedented election. It is. It is, it is still very hard to completely unpack both emotionally, uh, uh, but also just, um, you know, wh- what we just experienced uh, in terms of here in Wisconsin. And, and I'm talking about our April 7th election. Um, we are going to talk about that in great detail. Uh, we also need to talk about uh, Bernie Sanders suspending his campaign, uh, which is a huge, um, huge uh, historic moment again. Uh, and particularly for progressives and a lot of folks uh, who listen to this show. Uh, uh, so we'll talk more about that. Uh, but we're also going to talk a bit about uh, some some of what's been going on, both legislatively, both federally, but also here in the state around our response to COVID-19. Um, and then we also, we'd like to talk a little bit more about um, the, implica- the, the impact that COVID-19 is having on particularly the African-American community, both nationally, but uh, also here in Wisconsin. Um, so uh, as we record this morning, um, it was just announced that another 6.6 million Americans filed for unemployment benefits. So um, we are in the thick of this. Um, but I want to start by, Robert, getting your immediate thoughts to Bernie Sanders suspending his campaign yesterday. Um, again, right on the heels of our one, one may say here in Wisconsin, you know, it was a punch to go through that election on Tuesday, but then, um, uh, yesterday, Bernie Sanders announced a suspension, um, your thoughts. I mean, obviously folks who, who think the country needs fundamental structural reform are very disappointed, even though in, in, in reflecting, we understand that Bernie got way further in 2016 and 2018 than anyone who would imagine before the 2016 election and has completely changed the agenda of the Democratic Party for the better um, and just couldn't get over the hump. And I really think COVID-19 uh, was the final nail in the coffin. I'm not saying it wouldn't have been a huge challenge because of all of uh, all that was lined up against him and how well the uh, moderate wing all consolidated all at once, surprisingly, right right at Super Tuesday to, to resuscitate the Biden campaign. But COVID-19 creates this level of fear where people, when, they, when they're feeling fearful, they want to retrench. They're not thinking as boldly. They just want to protect themselves and their families. And then, of course, it took attention as well away from the Sanders campaign. So I told a radio host on Tuesday that I thought, he either had to drop out or he had to find some way to get leverage for pushing for a much more robust COVID-19 relief plan and containment plan, but that he couldn't go as he's been going the last few weeks. And so, uh, and so, and I, he's not, he's not leaving the battle. He, he still is going to be fighting 
for a platform like he did last time, a strong one, and I was on the platform, the National Platform Committee, for him last time. Uh, but this time, he has a better relationship. He and, and Joe Biden get along very well personally. Joe Biden was very nice to him when he had him in the Senate, unlike a lot of other senators, apparently, who ostracized him. And so they're actually talking. And so we may be able to get a lot more power sharing because it's in Joe Biden's interest to include the progressive wing and a lot of these ideas. And we need to think about things Biden would do. For example, Biden uh, will not do Medicare for all, but we got Hillary at platform committee. It was my amendment to support Medicare for all in the states and to make that possible with federal support. And so you could start with things like that, that maybe Joe Biden would actually support um, or come closer to supporting. Claire, your thoughts on uh, Senator Sanders' uh, suspension of his campaign? I I will say that um, I I was I did feel bad for folks in Wisconsin who um, voted for Bernie Sanders to have him drop out before all of our ballots are cast. Um, that is that's a that's a disheartening feeling. Um, I think there are a lot of us who, uh, I mean, the election was, which we're going to talk about later, was a really emotionally challenging day anyways for us. Um, and it was the first election in a long time where I didn't know the results of the election at the end of the day um, and had, had kind of emotionally prepared myself to, to not know what the results of these races were going to be for another week. And uh, but I was not I was not ready for one of the candidates who was on on that ballot to drop out before um, the votes that for the, for the race that he was running in were counted. Um, so so I felt I felt bad about that. Um, I I agree with everything um, Robert said though. Um, I think it was an, Bernie Sanders pushed an important narrative um, in this race. Uh, and I also think that that's that's not going to go away because all those policy ideas are out there now, and uh, organizations around the country like ours are uh, are going to be pushing progressive platforms that are made uh, more viable because of the work uh, that he and his uh, campaign staffers did. Yeah, Claire, I'd like to follow up on that because one of the things that I think is really important about Bernie's campaign is that it isn't really just about Bernie Sanders, right? Even though he clearly is an amazing, you know, as an individual, his campaign caught fire, unlike a lot of other campaigns do. But it's because it galvanized a movement. And he was speaking, and uh, he was the expression of a movement that we've all been a part of trying to build for years. Um, and so it's just, that's why Wednesday was just such a gut punch to have that happen, as you said, Claire, before we had even seen the results. Um, and I know a lot of folks uh, who work on the Bernie campaign here had worked very hard, I think on their own largely, um, in the last week or so, to, as it seemed this election was going to happen, to try to at least get word out. And I also want to give a shout out to People's Action, our national network, and a lot of the other uh, national networks and organizing networks that got out and endorsed Sanders this time and really, really worked hard to try to um, you know, put the, his his issues, our issues out there. Um, and I, I just want to read something from George Gale, People's Actions uh, National Director, because um, I think it's really important. Uh, he said, uh, Bernie Sanders' ability to cut through the corporate haze that clouds our politics 
is unmatched by any presidential candidate in our lifetime. Even as corporate power crested in our culture, Sanders and the social movements fighting alongside him have kept alive a vision of a country in which we put people and the planet first. There's more, but that's essentially one of the more powerful things that, uh, as Claire said, definitely lives beyond his campaign and is now a lot of um, it's, it is a part of the more of the mainstream debate and discussion, certainly within the Democratic Party. Um, I do think there is obviously a, a challenge going forward to make sure that those issues stay out there. But a big thank you to Senator Sanders for running and for everyone who, who, who's worked so hard on, on that campaign and will continue to work extremely hard on these issues. But um, wow, really, really rough. But with that, um, I would like us to move into a conversation about Tuesday's election. It was um, just unlike anything we've seen. Um, Claire, I know you started to, to talk a little bit about it in your, your comments about uh, Senator Sanders, but um, this has to be one of the most undemocratic elections I've ever been a part of. Robert, want to get your thoughts? So we don't have to tell people in Wisconsin who are our primary audience in Valley Wisconsin how horrendous this was, because almost everyone knows someone who was directly affected and, and at least is within a, a degree or a separation to someone who risked their lives or their family's lives. And so, I, I mean, reflecting, because I don't want to hyperventilate on this, usually if you push, if I push out a message that conservative policies were killing people, it would be seen as pushing the envelope in extreme and sometimes attacked by right-wing media. Now it's undeniable. Right. It's just undeniable. And the question is going to be whether the nakedness, na nakedness of this, because there's, there's virtually no deniability, is going to eventually uh, cause enough backlash to damage this brand of conservatism that is dominating the courts and dominating government, because uh, usually an ideology like this pushes too far and, uh, and like literally exposes itself. And this is one of those moments. And we need to be aware, we can talk about this more, that this is the blueprint for getting Trump reelected in 2020. So Wisconsin yesterday with the Petri dish writ large for the whole election, because a lot of experts think there'll be a second wave of coronavirus in the fall that will coincide with uh, the fall election. With that, we need to take our first break in the show. And when we come back, we are going to dive deeper into this Tuesday's election and uh, talk, talk about it in more detail, but also start to look forward. Uh, Robert, what you pose there is definitely something a lot of us have been thinking about. But with that, you're listening to The Battleground Wisconsin, where Citizen Action, you can find us at citizenactionwi.org. Welcome back to The Battleground Wisconsin, where Citizen Action, we're talking about this Tuesday's election which, you know, was just a sham. It was unbelievable. Um, Claire, uh, we, we heard from Robert before the break. Just want to get your immediate uh, top line sort of thoughts on, on the election. I have two. Um, the first is uh, Tuesday was an admittedly challenging. Challenging is, is just not strong enough of a word. Um, emotionally devastating day for me. Um, I'm a Wisconsinite through and through. I'm a Milwaukeean through and through. Um, I know we are an organization that serves the whole state and, you know, a podcast and radio show that goes out across the state um, 
but I, I can't speak with any authority on how, on how bad things were in any place aside from the city that is my home. And my heart just broke over and over and over again on, um, on Tuesday. And I, so I'm a former school board member of Milwaukee um, and all of these um, polling locations in Milwaukee were in uh, Milwaukee Public Schools, high schools. And so I knew all the polling locations really well. I knew the neighborhoods around them really well. I could picture them in my mind. Um, and um, there was one picture that, that really broke me and it was, it was a line of people with masks on waiting to vote outside of um, uh, Washington High School where there was a tribute to a coach from that school who had died from COVID-19 um, hanging on, on, a, on a fence um, as people waited in line outside the high school to vote. And it was just this perfect encapsulation of, it just, it just became so clear to me that there are elected leaders in our state who view the lives of um, the people in our state and the people in my city, um, especially um, people of color as, as disposable, um, disposable to, to the extent that it allows people in power to retain that power. Um, so it, it laid all of that bare for me. Um, that was an, an incredibly challenging and emotional day for me. The second thing that I think was laid bare was um, the fact that the Wisconsin and U.S. Supreme Court are just, uh, we've talked about this before, um, but are, but are just in, increasingly making partisan decisions and um, when you when when you make a ruling split entirely across these ideological sort of partisan lines um, on, on both Wisconsin and U.S. Supreme Courts, and that decision is about an election where the different parties to that suit are from different political parties, like it, it's there's just like no clearer encapsulation of these decisions being made in partisan ways, um, and and that is just such a clear. That was, that was just laid so so bare in these decisions. Uh, it's, and it's hard to make the argument that it's not about partisanship when it's about an actual election and the parties, the lawsuits are from different parties and the decisions are made across party lines. It, it, it's, to use Ruth Bader Ginsburg's words, it's mind-boggling. I'll turn it back to yeah. you, Matt. Yeah, no, it. It, it, uh, you, you're bringing up the Supreme Court, that, and let's be clear, there were two major Supreme Court decisions essentially uh, right on top of each other, um, and both of them, as you said, just brazenly political. Um, it was – for anyone who didn't understand why the Supreme Court elections, why these elections are so important, uh, it certainly was out there. Um, and look, the, the U.S. Supreme Court decision on the uh, not taking the ballots to the 13th was just, I mean, unbelievable in terms of how narrow the interpretation was, given what was at stake. Um, and I just have to say, I, I, I'm so angry about this. And I do believe in many ways, things changed a lot Monday afternoon, Monday evening, when these court decisions came down. For me personally, in terms of how I felt about the election, it became I, – I feel like this country took a step away from sort of a democracy in the way that we think of it, and it starts to move away from where both your courts, right, like that govern us here, at least in the state, just like 
basically were lawless almost. And that is a very scary thing. And I think it moves us very dangerously in a direction um, that's very, very disturbing. And the thought that of the implications of how it played out with the city of Milwaukee and the city of Green Bay having virtually, uh, let's just say it, virtually no polling locations open, you know, when you have five and two in cities that large, um, puts this election almost it almost guaranteed it into the hands of conservatives, which is just, um, it's disgusting. Uh, Robert, your thoughts? It's important to understand that uh, the court uh, issue is not just we happen to have a bunch of bad partisan judges. This was part of a long plan and conspiracy, which is ongoing. Uh, the plan to use big money from the, uh, the state chamber of commerce, which constantly manufacturing commerce, which is also the basis for Walkerism and Walker's uh, governorship, started in the 90s. Okay, and they've slowly packed the court. And, uh, and, and races didn't used to be these huge, big money things. They used to be things where people actually assessed judges and didn't have, hear about child molest, uh, fake child molestation charges every single election, whether they were true or not. Of course, they were totally false. Uh, in this case, and it didn't matter, uh, the charges against uh, Judge, Judge Karofsky. Uh, same with the U.S. Supreme Court. Uh, the right wing decided really in the early 90s, late 80s, to start packing the court. And the last kind of Nixon and George H.W. Bush actually made appointments that where the judges were very independent and surprised people and even made progressive decisions and conservative decisions. And that no longer happened. They decided after David Souter they were going to go through each one through a test so there was no way they would ever be independent and not be essentially a right-wing politician in a robe. And, this, and, so, and they're packing the court, the whole federal judiciary right now, with Trump and McConnell and getting away with it, partly because we got ruled the filibuster for uh, judicial appointments uh, when Harry Reid was the uh, uh, was uh, the, the Democratic leader in the Senate in the Obama years. And so, uh, here's the thing about the U.S. Supreme Court race: as bad as what you described and what Claire de, uh, described is, not the race, their decision. It's even worse. I was talking to a very prominent lawyer last night at length. And the Seventh Circuit, the appellate court level that upheld the district court judge Connolly, is a very conservative circuit. And our lawyers in the know didn't think there was any way on God's green earth the Supreme Court would overturn the Seventh Circuit. They were not overturning some sort of liberal judges. And for that to happen has sent a shockwave to the whole legal system and the judicial system, the federal judiciary. Uh, and we know there are always four votes to do these sort of things, but John Roberts showed himself. So this attorney told me that he had had some respect for John Roberts as having some level of independence, and he has none. The other thing to bear in mind is, if you read the decision, it barely mentions COVID-19. I mean, the fact that this all was happening, and Ruth Bader Ginsburg pulled them out for it, but heck, this is happening in a pandemic and that that might need you to change election procedures and might hold up ballots and make it longer for them to come in and to, be, to get to people uh, and get witnessed and all of that was not even part of the decision. That's why uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg called it a narrow technical decision when it was not about that. So stunning and shocking, even at a level beyond what the average person on social media would say if you talk to lawyers. I will agree with that, um, but I just wanted to remind folks as well that um, Justice Roberts was also part of, and I think we even might have written the majority decision 
on the gutting of the Voting Rights Act back in, I want to say, like 2013. And that is the Supreme Court decision that allowed states all over the country, but also in Wisconsin, to do all of these voter suppression tactics legally. So that's when we started rolling back early voting dates and requiring a voter ID. Um, the whole voter purge from the list that happened in Wisconsin earlier in 2019 and that happened in places like Georgia that made national news, I mean, all of that um, because of, of the Supreme Court and specifically because of Chief Justice Roberts. Yeah, I'm not arguing he's anything different. I'm saying that he protected the ACA twice. Uh, so he always had these kind of the same year he upheld the ACA, he got at the Voting Rights Act. So uh, it, regardless, this is a new low for Roberts, but he's had plenty of other lows, and he clearly is deeply conservative, who's also political. But he thought he'd get away with this one, clearly. That seems to be uh, – and then he'll do a good one in order to make it look like he's a jurist. So let's talk a little bit here about – in state, uh, we got a minute before we uh, go to break, and I, I want to talk more about this. But um, uh, obviously, Evers made his final move on Monday afternoon, and in some ways, it led to you know a great deal of confusion for voters. Um, and in particular, you know, yeah, including we we can just say we know there were voters who were telling phone bankers and other people that no they were wrong and then they had till the 13th to get their their ballots postmarked they had heard right so like this whole the way this all played out was uh incredibly confusing um and obviously ultimately and we need to talk more about this led to what's going to be clear violation of voting rights. I mean, the, the impact on, on people of color in this election is just like, it's just so obvious and so blatant what, what happened. Uh, but just so many other types of groups of people. And the stories we're starting to hear now about the absentee ballots, uh, buckets or crates of them being found in post office, we're going we're gonna to have more stories, uh, plus just the fact that people didn't get their ballots and were forced then to go vote. Um, just unbelievable, unbelievable uh, uh, Tuesday experiences. But we got to take a break. We'll talk more about the election uh, when we get back from uh, this break. You're listening to the Battleground Wisconsin, where Citizen Action. You can find us at citizenactionwi.org. Welcome back to the Battleground Wisconsin. We're talking about Tuesday's election. Uh, such that it was. Um, I do want to talk about a little bit about how this election, um, at least amongst groups we work with, uh, progressive organizations, um, there was some amazing work done by a lot of groups. Um, uh, because Wisconsin's going to be such an important state this fall for the presidential election, uh, there's a lot more resources flowing in that uh, provided uh, more uh, more money uh, for organizations to do organizing work. Um, and I think uh, we were going to have a, a really historically great election for a lot for, for progressives before this happened. Um, and I can just say that when a lot of uh, when COVID-19 really came in, a lot of our groups uh, who were doing significant 
field operations on the doors had to switch to phones and digital tactics and um, did that very quickly um, and did it in a very highly coordinated manner in terms of really talking with each other about um, you know, how we could most effectively make this transition. And so I just want to, you know, say shout out to all the uh, groups and, and, and volunteers and folks in the progressive movement who I, I just think did amazing work uh, in what is was incredibly traumatic working conditions. I cannot tell you how hard it was for people making phone calls and trying to ethically deal with uh, the morality that they were decisions they were forced into by the leaders of uh, the state uh, to send people out and ask people to go vote uh, on Monday, you know, and Tuesday after these verdicts, uh, that put people in some very challenging um, situations. And I just want to thank all of those folks uh, who did that hard work, all of the volunteers, all of the groups, the organizations, the funders, people who like really invested a lot in trying to make sure that we still have some form of democracy. And let me just say there was historic uh, over 1.2 million absentee ballots, um, huge efforts to try to get those in, to get people to do that. Um, and so to that, um, we may have seen a historic shift also in this state in this election to voting early and to voting by mail. Um, and I would suggest that is an extraordinarily positive thing, uh, even though we're going to hear about glitches because we, you know, force this upon a system not ready for it in like two, three weeks. Uh, but I think going forward, there's no reason why, and I want to encourage people, we should all more start trying to to uh, uh, vote for absentee when, when we have an opportunity. It is actually a very good potential process. I want to encourage folks, you can actually go online right now and sign up to get your ballots for this fall. And that may be really critical with um, the uh, Corona-19 possibly still being around in the fall. Um, Robert, you mentioned the idea that um, this is possibly the future, and we may see this with Trump. We may see this uh, as a strategy going forward um, uh, this fall. More thoughts on that and what happened here in Wisconsin. It's been clear for a while, though, there's some disagree there's been some disagreement among uh, voting rights advocates, but that all mail ballot states have very high turnout, but that means that you mail it to everyone, every eligible voter, uh, and that you uh, and and that you don't have a whole bunch of ridiculous requirements like having the Xerox or your photo ID and stuff like that. Uh, so it's interesting that COVID-19 actually creates a situation where with the Republican conspiracy to suppress votes, which has we've been talking about for the whole history of Battleground Wisconsin for for, for nearly a decade now, but which is intensifying, uh, this actually, there's now another argument for it. That is, who wants to freaking expose themselves during a pandemic or choose, as Wisconsin voters had to uh, this week, between their health and their family's health and their right to vote? Uh, so uh, Democrats are getting this. National Democrats are trying to put money into the release packages to allow, uh, to fund states to do massive mail voting. And yet it's being blocked because Republicans, Mitch McConnell, at, uh, for example, uh, has been clear that he doesn't want to increase voter turnout. I mean, he said this, and now Trump is going after it and claiming it leads to fraud. And this is the usual right-wing canard because, again, there's no evidence of increased fraud, and Trump himself voted by mail. Of course, fraud and, and Trump, that's different, for he's above the law. I forgot, so I, I shouldn't have mentioned that. Uh, but 
so this is a thing where we literally are going to be, the whole country could be like Wisconsin. Um, we asked uh, the governor's office yesterday whether they were uh, figuring out how to push for funding for mail voting and to prepare for um, November and push for mail voting. And uh, they said they didn't have anything ready yet. So at least they are thinking they might. That's good. But I think we actually need to push the state to try to move to mail voting because we cannot just say, and this is what we need to get over, we cannot compromise with ourselves and keep saying, well, Voss will block it, even though he's an illegitimate gerrymandered majority, so we shouldn't propose it. The public increasingly is going to be outraged because yesterday, that is Tuesday, two days ago, um, when we're, from when we're recording, they had to, many had to risk their lives. And they all know people had to risk their lives. They were on social media and saw it, et cetera, and are appalled. And the national media is appalled. So this is a time to expose the other side is literally wanting to uh, win so badly they're willing to kill people, which is no longer hyperbole. It's a national consensus, be unless you're hard wing, hardcore right-wing ideologue. Claire? I agree. Uh, Robert, I'm glad that you brought up Trump's comments about voting by mail because I did watch that exchange between uh, Trump and this reporter where a reporter said to him, um, yeah, you criticized voting by mail, but didn't you vote in Florida by mail uh, just like a week ago? And he's like, well, I'm allowed to. And then proceeded to try to make some nonsensical argument about voting by mail being okay if you are out of the state that you want to vote in, but not okay if you are within the state. I mean, it's just it's just nonsensical. Um and uh, well, well Claire, I, it's, it's sensical in one thing because he also said that for some reason it doesn't turn out for for Republicans. Yeah, that, that some reason being more people vote, right, Claire? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, well, we yeah, yeah, we all know what their actual motivation is, right? Um, so I I think that we should be uh, we need to be vigilant about protecting our right to vote absentee um, or to vote by mail is maybe a better way of putting it because of course we are not um, absent we need to be ever present um, because it showed that it it was the the thing that allowed so many people to keep voting at a time of crisis um, and and that means that it's you know, it could be something that folks uh, in power who want to preserve their power, like Republicans, come after. Um, so, yeah, I think we got to be hyper vigilant in protecting our right to vote by mail. Um, and I hope that because so many people did it, that they be, are now more comfortable with it and more comfortable with the idea of expanding it. Um, I know that, for example, it took a lot of effort for my uh, 90 and 89 year old grandparents to vote by mail because they'd never done it before. And they really wanted to go to the polls and it took me a long time to convince them to request their ballots. Um, but after they did it, they were really happy about it. And I, I think a lot of people might have that experience. Um, the first time you do something, it's always a little bit scary, but then it becomes easier to keep, to keep doing it, especially if it has such a positive result. Yeah. Look, I, I, I think, we are likely to see a lot more efforts around uh, the voting from home. It's just, um, we just don't know. Um, we do not have um, a vaccine for, for COVID-19. And so Robert, you raised that this is likely going to be back. This is likely going to be part of the strategy. And we have seen, we got to stop believing 
that the other side is going to do the right thing. We, we, we have got to understand that at some level, this this is at a different level right now. This is not like it's a sort of moving behind the polite civics debate, right? They, this is a battle for power, uh, and it is it is actually very disturbing. Uh, but look, they put people's lives at risk. And um, it, Claire, you talked about it from some, yourself as someone um, from Milwaukee, school board. Uh, a member, former school board member. I feel the same way. I'm just still emotionally very charged up about this. What I witnessed at Riverside High School was disgusting. And um, it was surreal. Just people three hours deep and in lines basically all day long. I, I know so many people I talked to who just did not go vote because they could not, they couldn't go stand in line. You know, some people who are actually still working, right? You know, things like that. Um, and just it was completely unsafe. Uh, people did their best to try to distance, but you know that was you know it's just it was it was a tragedy, shamocracy, right? A just complete sham of an election, um, in a in a tragedy. Claire, one last thing I want to say: we're talking about this election as if it's over and people won't be voting again until November. But I wanted to flag that there is a special election happening next month on May 17th in Wisconsin's 7th Congressional District, where Citizen Action member Trisha Zunker is running for that open congressional seat. And so there are people in Wisconsin who will still need to vote by mail yet during what is potentially still to be a stay-at-home situation. So, so we, can, we should not pretend as if this is over for everybody in Wisconsin. This is still a very real issue for a lot of our members and neighbors. In fact, if you live in CD7, you should uh, go online today and, you know, put in, apply for your absentee ballot now, get this process moving uh, immediately. Uh, but with that, um, we are going to take a break here at the Battleground Wisconsin. Again, we're Citizen Action. You can find us at citizenactionwi.org. On the back side, we're going to talk a little bit about uh, specifically around COVID-19 uh, and some of the legislative and congressional uh, potential responses. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Battleground Wisconsin. We're Citizen Action. We are going to talk a little bit now about specifically where we're at in COVID-19. Um, again, we record Thursday morning. Wisconsin is now over, uh, well over a thousand deaths and um that we we heard some potential positive news that maybe the projections uh, might be lower um, for deaths here uh, in the country because of uh, how well we've done some of the social distancing and locking down um, and staying at home. Uh, but deaths are still increasing, and this still uh, is incredibly. Uh, fluid situation. And uh, we mentioned earlier about uh, the, the job numbers, 6.6 million more uh, unemployed. Uh, the wave of pain is still still significant and a lot of, lot of it's still out there. Um, Robert, lead us in a discussion around obvious, uh, around the response that we're seeing legislatively. We've, we've talked more about the federal response and spent some time talking about the stimulus, but what about the state response? And uh, there's been some discussion this week, including news where the legislature is even talking about pulling more power from Governor Evers and even considering cuts uh, to critical programs. Robert? So 
there are really two levels of response, and we have to also pay attention to the federal and the state because there's another federal uh, relief plan in the works. And there's the primary impact of the public health epidemic itself and funding we need to contain it or policies like free testing and treatment that we are pushing, which is the only way to get everyone tested and treated and to identify and break all the chains of transmission and get back to normal. Then there's the coma, the medically induced coma we put the economy in through social distancing because we didn't do the testing up front, that we're the worst country in the world at that, uh, relatively speaking, and uh, because of the failures of the Trump administration. And so the federal response has been the biggest in American history, and it's still totally inadequate. Hence, the next one is also in the works, and it's really protecting corporations still more than small businesses and average people. Uh, and so there's a state level, though, where the Trump uh, re uh, response or lack thereof, which is a failure at a number of levels, has left states on their own and has put immense burdens on states because they, we haven't used the Defense Production Act. Uh, we haven't federalized the supply chain. States are competing with each other for supplies and they need money. And so there are shortages of things you need in hospitals. Uh, and there's all sorts of support you need to both to reinforce the medical system and to try to deal with the economic damage. And the problem is the Republicans are still taking the position in Wisconsin that we should just wait for the federal action. And they don't really want to spend any more money, even though it's clear that the states they're succeeding are using their own resources. So they're hamstringing the governor. I think there's a little, I have a little concern the governor is trying to start by compromising with them and not putting out a strong enough position, like he should have free testing and treatment, for example, or we won't contain the virus. That's our position we talked about last week, and we can, we can link more material to it on the website. Uh, but it's terrible. Not only are they not taking up the very moderate proposals that I would say don't go far enough that Governor Evers has put together, but at least they do a lot, right? Or do something, some important things. Um, they are actually writing their own bill. They claim it's bipartisan, but it's not. And part of what they want to do is be given the authority at the Joint Finance Committee to make unilateral cuts to things like schools and other public services because they're more concerned about the deficit during a pandemic uh, than they are about the pandemic and, it, and its repercussions. So we're going to have to call out everyone because this is another train wreck coming and another, and it's another thing that's going to kill people literally. And this is, you know, it's not, it, it's, it, it was always true that not the denying, not expanding Medicaid was killing people, even though that upset the right wing when I said it. But this is becoming more and more visible. You're in a pandemic and we're going to be a state where they try to hamstring the governor and the governor is going to have to be willing to act not only his own, as an own, on his own if he had to. And he did with social distancing um, and his attempt, at, 11th hour attempt to delay the election. But to we really need a public fight to expose them here because this is going to, you know, some states are doing better than others. And we're not going to be one of the better states if we allow Robin Voss and Scott Fitzgerald and this uh, illegitimate majority uh, to, uh, to, uh, to, to make the decision. Claire, your thoughts. Again, I feel like I say the same thing over and over again, um, but it's just so clear that what the Republicans who control the legislature are concerned with right now is protecting and consolidating their own power, not the lives of our neighbors and our constituents. And I mean, it is, it is mind boggling that 
people across the state are coming together to support one another through um, delivering meals and mutual aid funds and making masks for people to wear both in and outside of um, hospitals and, um, you know, making sure that folks get food who can't leave the home, right? Like we are supporting one another, but our elected officials are refusing to support us. And that that is absolutely just atrocious. It's, it's like the polar opposite of what leadership should be. And to use this opportunity as um, as a, an excuse or a way or a window to consolidate power for your branch is is important. Um, and it, it's not as if I think that the legislative package that the governor has put forward to Robert's point is is comprehensive enough. Um, it certainly has some good things in it and um, will move us in the right direction. Um, but the very least a productive thing that they could have done would be to take up that and at least talk about the provisions that are in it and try to keep the focus on how we actually help people. Um, but to, to totally ignore it um, and go in, in an opposite and harmful direction at a time when people are dying is, is, is oh my gosh it, it just makes me so mad so I, that was not seems, an articulate way to end my comments yeah. but <laughs> no but you yeah and it feels like groundhog day right around here sometimes uh, <clears throat> responding to what we expect to have happen <clears throat> excuse me um look i just i i think what we witnessed uh this tuesday there's there's going to be very little governing and legislating. Evers is going to do the best uh, possible, but like these these folks are going to be awful. Um, what we absolutely need is we need a vision, and this is an opportunity uh, for progressives and legislative leaders and Evers uh, to actually lay out our agenda and lay out an agenda of what we would do to govern and start to be very clear about what's at stake in November. And we already have issue number one. These people put the risk of every person in the state, um, to put the health at risk of every person in the state for their own political power. And then there needs to be next, what are we for? And what would we do if we were actually in power? And so it's really important that uh, legislative leaders and uh, Governor Evers and everyone lay those visions out and regardless of whether you think they're going to pass or not, of course they're not going to pass. These people are awful, right? Like this, but we can't run around and just keep saying these people are awful. We need to lay out a clear agenda of what we would do. And I think we've got, uh, a ch it's the only chance to to win some of these races where they have uh, gerrymandered uh, 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 seats. Robert, some thoughts you have? Well, I was on a national call yesterday. I was asked to talk about Wisconsin on, and Bob Creamer was on, who's very well-known progressive strategist, married to Congresswoman Jan Schakowsky. He was speaking on Zoom from her Washington office. And uh, he his insight was, which I thought was interesting, that a lot of times progressives think the way to get a governor, for example, or or any Democrat to stand firm is to put pressure on them. He says the backlash against the Republicans by the public is what makes them feel firmer, like they can stand up. And you'll notice that Nancy Pelosi simply said to the bad stimulus relief bills, we're not passing them, and negotiated, right? 
So if we want to get Tony Evers to veto a horrible bill and to use his only power to force them to negotiate, then I think we need to put to create a visible firestorm on Republicans that he sees, not just try to beat up on on our governor, who is a good man and who, whether we disagree with his tactics sometimes or whether he goes far enough, know that he has his heart is in the right place and he's trying to serve the people. And so really, in a democracy, it's not just about being a spectator and watching them interact. Then the power dynamic just plays out. It's We have to change the dynamic through our response. And that's why when we're, we're going to be calling on all of you to actually elevate issues and to create such a storm that's visible that Governor Evers will veto uh, anything they don't do that is inadequate or even harmful, like giving, allowing them to gut our schools with, without any kind of oversight. Claire, I'm going to give you the last 30 seconds before we go. Before we wrap, I wanted to take uh, just a second to highlight something positive in the governor's legislative proposal, um, which was part of our advocacy platform for state action around COVID-19. And that is to the extent that the state is able to regulate certain private insurance plans, um, it is uh, the request is to prohibit cost sharing for and prior authorizations for testing, diagnosis, treatment, prescriptions, and vaccines related to COVID-19. Um, so that, that was part of our request of the state. Um, and so I want to thank everybody who took the time to send an email to the governor and the legislature in support of this platform because um, this, this part of our request made it into the bill. Thank you, Claire. And with that, we have got to wrap up this battleground Wisconsin. We want to thank our producer, Brian Wildridge, who pulls it together every week. And it's certainly been challenging in this time of COVID-19. But uh, folks, hang in there. This has been just an emotionally uh, bruising week. But uh, we, we will be there. We will be with you next week. We'll see you all next week at the Battleground Wisconsin.